1: Hi, my name is Dag Abrams, and I'm reading The Invitation to Joy from the Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. To celebrate one of our special birthdays, we met for a week in Dharamsala to enjoy our friendship and to create something that we hope will be a birthday gift for others. There is perhaps nothing more joyous than birth, and yet so much of life is spent in sadness, stress, and suffering. We hope this small book will be an invitation to more joy and more happiness. No dark fate determines the future. We do. Each day and each moment, we are able to create and recreate our lives and the very quality of human life on our planet. This is the power we wield.
0: Doug Abrams has been an editor at HarperCollins and a literary agent with his company, Idea Architects. He's the author of the novels The Lost Diary of Don Juan and Eye of the Whale. His new book is a work of nonfiction, The Book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World, co-written with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Thank you for joining me, Doug. Great to be here, Rick. How did you come to this project? In other words, I think you started out working with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. How did that relationship begin?
1: Well, Archbishop Tutu has been a hero of mine since I was in college. During our college time was the anti-apartheid struggle and the divestment movement. And when I left HarperCollins, I made a list of the people I most wanted to work with in the world, and he was at the top of the list. Long story short, the universe kind of put us together, and we got to work together and have worked together for over a decade. And it's been one of the great joys of my life. And When we were at his wife's birthday party, I was there with another friend and client who was uh, the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. And he asked, what do you think about these two guys writing a book together? And I said, wow, what would it be about? We both thought for a second and we looked at each other and we said, joy, because these are two of the most extraordinarily joyful people on the planet. And so I turned over to uh, Archbishop Tutu and I said, hey, Arch, as he's often called, you want to write a book with the Dalai Lama? And he said, I'd do anything with that man Cause they love each other and they're just fantastic friends.
0: What a great story. A lot of preparations for this. Take us through some of that, This negotiations. I mean, they tried to get together at, the, the, at Arch's uh, 80th birthday. That didn't work out. And then this week-long, I would say, Socratic dialogues.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it was quite a journey. Unfortunately, global politics and health have kept the Archbishop and, and uh, the Dalai Lama apart. And one of the most disappointing and difficult uh, experiences was when the Dalai Lama was supposed to come to Archbishop Tutu's 80th birthday in South Africa. And the South African government was not willing to give the Dalai Lama a visa because of pressure from China. As uh, your listeners probably know, know, China invaded Tibet and really has tried to isolate and to kind of limit the Dalai Lama's movement and influence. And so because South Africa sells a lot of minerals to China, they were unwilling to give a visa. So he wasn't able to come, but they were able to have a wonderful Google Hangout at the time, which was fantastic. But we really wanted to bring... Arch to the Dalai Lama for his 80th birthday, uh, since the Dalai Lama wasn't able to be at Arch's 80th birthday, and so a year ago, April, when the Dalai Lama was turning 80, actually that year it was turning in in, in July, we decided to fly Archbishop Tutu from South Africa, and given his health issues and his challenges, we didn't know whether it was going to be able to happen, and we actually had to reschedule the trip and the itinerary a number of times as a result of that, but we were able to take Archbishop Tutu to Dharamsala for a week, and it was this extraordinary journey. So as you said, it it was these incredible dialogues, five days of deep discussion, but we also got to do these incredible things like learn to meditate with the Dalai Lama. We got to break bread and and have them just enjoy each other's company in a way they've never had. You know, global leaders don't get to hang out with their where their buddies very often. And then we were, you know, even able to host this birthday party for the Dalai Lama where the Dalai Lama danced for the first time in his life, which was a picture of pure joy as well as a little bit of kind of junior high school awkwardness as well.
0: <laughs> uh, one of the interesting things for me is that you craft in this book, these two men as characters. Uh, And they're so wonderful. For me, what was interesting was, for all the amazing wisdom, the beauty and joy they bring, these are guys that i kind of feel like i could hang out and, and as they say have a beer with <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's really it's really one of our main goals and their main goals with the book was to really share their humanity mm-hmm. as well as their wisdom and they are both incredibly humble people who are very clear about the fact that they are just two of the 7 billion people on the planet and though we want to raise them up and you know kind of venerate them they really feel most comfortable just being two other to other guys <laughs> two other people and that and really I think their friendship part of what that that re- reveals is that kind of humorous playful teasing relationship that we have with our best friends and so It really did, you know, so often people have heard the Dalai Lama kind of, you know, from, you know, this, you know, pedestal or Archbishop Tutu from the mountaintop. And, you know, they seem like these larger than life global icons and these, you know, kind of religious masters. And what you really got, we got that week and what was so extraordinary was really their humanity, their ability to share their own struggles, their own stories, and just... Being them, as you said, you know, it's like you, you're having beer with them or having tea with them, and you're just getting to sit down and just talk with and explore some of the deepest experiences and the deepest insights into our human
0: life. I have to wonder, you're on the page with two of the most influential and powerful spiritual figures on the planet you hold your own every second of the way that must have been a bit intimidating for you
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was hugely intimidating um there were definitely many dark nights of the soul dark dark mornings of the soul and wondering whether you know both in terms of the preparation we could you know do justice to this incredible historic moment In the dialogues themselves. I mean, the the night before the dialogues began, I was kind of awoken at three o'clock in the morning. This was, uh, that's the time the Dalai Lama gets up to meditate. And I just had this, you know, kind of moment of self doubt that we all have at moments of great, you know, opportunity and growth in our lives. And I just realized and kind of came to the awareness that this wasn't about me. This wasn't about my limitations or my shortcomings as, a, as an interviewer, as a writer. Ultimately, I was there just as an ambassador for people around the world to get to experience this and that it really was something that was much beyond. I was just kind of the channel for that to happen. And after that, it just was blissful. I mean, when I was able, you know, it's interesting, one of the themes they talk about is, the arch has this wonderful saying, he says, when you go beyond your own self-regard, you will be surprised by the joy. And so when I was able to tra- you know, to get away from my, my worries about my own in, you know, limitations and insecurities and wondering when Oprah Winfrey or uh, Anderson Cooper was going to step in and, and handle these interviews, then I was able to just be present with them, stare into their gorgeous, compassionate eyes, and ask them the questions that we had prepared and that the world had sent to us.
0: Talk about that process of getting and vetting questions from the world, around the world.
1: Yeah, so I uh, was incredibly skillfully helped in this process by Thupdin Jimpa, who is the Dalai Lama's translator for almost, I think it's going on 30 years now, and just an amazing and wonderful human being who I was able to work with to kind of, you know, develop the questions initially and kind of think about what were their the core things that they might want to talk about, because we knew we had just this very limited amount of time, and we wanted to really go to the heart and core of what they would want to say. And you know, he, he knew where all the best stories for the Dalai Lama were buried, and I knew where all the best stories for Archbishop Tutu were buried. But then we opened it up to the to the world. But because of the way things kind of sorted out and timing and thing, we only had about three days to get questions. We got over a thousand questions from the world. And this was actually quite fascinating, which was the question that most people wanted to ask was not a personal question about how they could have more joy in their life. It was actually, how do we live with joy in a world that is filled with so much suffering? And that was a question that was very powerful to see, to, that reminds us how intimately connected we are to one another and obviously is only more relevant as the world has, has endured many body blows, if you will, from various kinds of events, both elections and terrorist attacks and refugee crises and all the other things that uh, we
0: wrestle with right now in the world. One of the things that struck me about this book was the power of storytelling. Um, both on an individual level when the Dalai Lama and Bishop Tutu tell stories, but also the way you weave together as an editor. It's amazingly skillful,
1: Hmm. the
0: stories that they tell and the story of these dialogues into a big arc. So I'd like you to speak to the power of story in this this event for you and in creating the book. Sure. Well— Maybe the background is to say that they envisioned the book as a
1: kind of three-layer birthday cake, so for the world. And, you know, the first layer was their stories and their wisdom. The second layer was the travelogue experience, kind of the, 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 the week together, sharing the experience of the week. Because we really wanted people to feel like they were really there in the room with us and experiencing this with us. We really wanted to take the whole world on that trip. And then the third layer was the science. Interestingly, they really wanted us to make this not a Christian book, not a Buddhist book, but to make it a universal book and to use science to kind of validate or critique what they were saying. But your point about stories is is a very powerful one. And I think think we are story dwellers. I Mm -hmm. think we live in story. We understand the world in story. We understand our lives in stories. So frankly, much more powerful than a kind of pronouncement of Ten Commandments from the mountaintop is the stories by which we navigate our lives. And so hearing them talk about their stories and share these extraordinarily personal stories like the Dalai Lama talking about the flight into exile, the night that he left into exile, or Archbishop Tutu talking about the struggles that he's had forgiving his father. I think those are the, the, the stories that we
0: reimagine our own lives through. I think that the dialogues themselves are so fascinating and so filled with really interesting interaction between the two men because they don't always agree on all of these things and that's one of the, uh, that creates this kind of back and forth tension.
1: Yeah, I mean it is really interesting. I, I think that we really wanted to, the dialogues to be able to show the uniqueness of each of their views, their commonalities and their differences um what i would say is i think that w- w- the at the kind of wellsprings of joy at the kind of deepest levels of what we're talking about it was actually quite extraordinary to see how much alignment there was mm-hmm. and a, a reminder that at kind of the heart of every tradition and its deepest practitioners you know the you know the, all the you're you're at the same well um, or to flip the metaphor you know you all the paths lead to the same mountaintop but I think there were some interesting and subtle differences. Like, for example, the Dalai Lama was a big exponent of what he called mental immunity, the ability to prevent ourselves from catching the cold, if you will, of negative emotions like fear and anger and sadness. And Archbishop Tutu, I think he he also agreed that there are these through these practices we can minimize those experiences in our life what they call the joy practices or the eight, you know the eight pillars that we, prevent, we present in the book eight pillars of joy he was also very understanding of the frailties and vulnerabilities and weaknesses of our humanity and really was a quite a a strong advocate for not beating up on ourselves when we fall into um, the kind of patterns and, and emotions that many of us grapple with on a daily
0: basis. I think for many people, the science that you use uh, to tie together these teachings is going to be really fascinating. And there was a book that came out a few years ago called Wisdom by Stephen Hall. Mm-hmm. And in it, what he did was he uh, looked at the what well, the eight pillars of wisdom, and then hmm. did the neuroscience research to tie those pillars of wisdom to different portions of the brain. Yeah, and interesting. I, <laughs> and, interesting. And I think that this is not some. This is pretty similar to what you are doing too. Well, is it's, it's uh, I've been very privileged to work with a lot of the
1: pioneering scientists in the frontier of um, happiness studies, if you will, or or neuroscience of wellness and and uh, mental health. And so I was able to draw on their work and also to bring in other work that really kind of complements what they said. You know, it's fascinating because Archbishop Tutu has this phrase that he uses called self-corroborating truth where many different disciplines um, come to the same conclusion. And I think we need to look at religion as one of the deepest ways that we have explored the nature of our humanity and what it means to live a human life. And now science is also asking many of those same questions. And so the empirical process is a wonderful way to validate that. I mean, there were so many interesting things that we learned from the science. I mean, one of the most amazing things was going to this developmental perinatologist who was basically telling me, they were talking about the importance of adversity in in our actual emotional and spiritual growth and how, in this book, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu talk a lot about how you know, because the book is really about joy in the face of adversity. It's about how do you have help, you know, happiness and well-being in the reality of what we're dealing with, not in some kind of mystical or kind of imaginary realm where you're kind of in a perpetual yoga class and everything's just blissful and wonderful. <laughs> um, and these are two men who have obviously dealt with an enormous amount of adversity and hardship in their own lives and in the lives of their people. But this perinatologist was explaining that the fetus doesn't actually develop unless there is enough stress, biological stress, to the cells in the, in the embryo. So it's just this extraordinary kind of scientific metaphor, if you will, or scientific you know kind of underpinning of what they're saying, which is that actually we need stress and adversity as arch said it's like a muscle you know if you it becomes flabby if you don't you know exercise it but we need that stress and that adversity and actually to grow and develop and the Dalai Lama said this wonderful thing about how adversity is an opportunity that
0: destiny has given us that is really beautiful you know for me one of the things i've seen across the past few years again from a variety of disciplines is the import of compassion, whether it's uh, the mirror neurons that allow us to empathize um, automatically, just that's part of our makeup, or whether it's um, trying to understand another's perspective so that we can walk a mile in their shoes. That That theme is really important to these two men and they have a really nice number of subtle and nuanced approaches to it. Yeah, it's a, it's
1: a powerful point that you raise. Actually, compassion was such a theme in the dialogues, I almost thought we were going to have to call it the Book of Compassion. But I do think that their description of compassion being so important to joy was fascinating.
0: Absolutely, that yeah. that um, only in compassion to others and under, by understanding others do we find true joy in ourselves. And that is, I think the at the very center of this book is that that's the center message that to experience true joy that exists regardless of our daily circumstance is to reach out and to understand others.
1: Yeah, I think that it's really true. I also think it's it's a development in our culture right now mm-hmm. and in our, you know, c- human consciousness is that development of extending the fundamental empathy and compassion that we have, you know, because we are a a kind of mammalian species that is dependent on our social relationships for our survival, into expanding that into others beyond our, you know, immediate circle of family and friends. And they talked about that as absolutely essential. The Dalai Lama even said that if you uh, do a compassion meditation in the morning, um, that it brings joy for 24 hours. And I said, you know, really, before coffee? And, and he, he said, yes, before coffee. So so I, I do think it's so fundamental to both of these men's practices and orientations, and I fundamentally think it's a major part of why they are such wellsprings of joy.
0: I think that you were talking about the way um, different religions are all approaching the same point from slightly different directions. And I think that's true, but what that made me think is that religion itself is approaching many of the same concepts that science is, again from a different point, point. and one of the things that this book does is it shows us the absolute convergence of these two things that are often thought of as being almost mutually exclusive.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think, you know, the Dalai Lama has famously been very engaged with scientists mm-hmm. and frankly one of the things he said was one of the opportunities he'd been given because of the adversity of his exile was to be engaging with many scientists and other religious leaders. And I think there we really are converging in this trying in this book on the kind of deepest understanding of one of the of the human experience, and really what the scientists say is there are basically four fundamental human emotions. There is fear, there's anger, there's sadness, and there's joy. And so really, you know, and emotions exist, obviously, generally to get us to do something other than we're doing those so-called negative emotions of fear, anger, and sadness. They're fundamental and important, and they're, you know, throughout this book, are not diminishing in any way the validity and importance of those emotions to our human experience. But really, what we have to build a life of meaning and purpose and satisfaction on is joy. And so understanding that is really, allows us to understand so much of the human terrain and actually what they would say, and this was one of fascinating, kind of counterintuitive thing for me in, in working on the book with them, is they actually, we think of it as joy and sorrow. Okay, I've either got joy or I've got sorrow. And what they said was it's really like the volume on a stereo. You either numb yourself out to the sorrow, but you numb yourself out to the joy. You turn that volume down on all of life, or you turn the knob up, and you're going to have more joy but you are going to feel that sorrow more acutely as well and these are you know men who really feel life so profoundly so the goal is not to enter into some state of perpetual bliss and you know joyous rapture where you never experience fear anger and sadness it's really about understanding those emotions and and appreciating them in our lives in a way that allows us to not be controlled by them so that we can pass through. There's this wonderful phrase that the Dalai Lama used when when we are passing through troubles, you know, and, you know, when we are passing through the the adversity and the anguish that we all experience in our lives, how we can travel through that in a way that we don't get stuck there, we don't get lost there, and we can experience more joy in our life and bring more joy to others.
0: I thought they had a really fascinating discussion, too, about the relationship between rational thought and emotional thought, the way that those two work together. Talk about that.
1: You know, it's funny. I mean, one of the things that you're reminding me of is the the arch was a little bit intimidated about crossing wits with the Dalai Lama because the <laughs> Dalai Lama, as he said, is is so cerebral, you know, and he'd say, well, I'm more instinctual, by which I think he means more emotional and more um, kind of less kind of cognitively, you know, kind of analytical and, you know, kind of scientific in, in some way. And so there was this wonderful union of, you know, there's this wonderful moment right at the beginning where the Dalai Lama is talking about how much suffering comes from our own head. And the Dalai Lama, and that the Archbishop tapped his chest and said, you know, to point to his heart as well. And the Dalai Lama said, yes, and our heart. And so I think the book is really, and they are such beautiful examples of the fusion of those two aspects. So one of the things science now knows is that there's a neural net around our heart. You know, mm-hmm. there's like a, there's basically like a heart brain, if you will, that interacts and connects with the, what um, one of my, Friends and clients, Dan Siegel calls you know the 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 skull and closed brain. So you know there's there's the, there's neurons throughout our entire body. There's knowledge. There's intelligence throughout our entire body, and certainly around the heart. And I think you know we want to make these these very old kind of Victorian distinctions between intellect and emotions. Um, but really, the wisest intellect has that emotional sensitivity, and the wisest emotions. Are are kind of refined by our intellect, so it's really um, it's about the integration of those.
0: I think that for readers, as this book unfolds, the way that you create the setting, talk about just putting people in that human place with those human beings.
1: Well, it was you know one of the great joys of doing the project was getting that kind of intimate, up-close view. I mean, there's the, you're reminding me of this wonderful story where we were, you know, the first lunch we were having, and I had the pleasure and privilege of sitting next to the Dalai Lama. And, you know, he was holding forth and talking and trying to eat his, his lunch. And, you know, he was, uh, at one point he said, you know, he only eats two meals a day, so this lunch is his last meal. And so he said, you know, you, you know, to the arch- archbishop, he said, you know, you talk now because, you know, I need to eat. And they were joking about who was listening and who was a holy man and all of this. And so at, he, the Dalai Lama was served his dessert and it was this wonderful Tibetan rice pudding. And of course, as you know, you know, Buddhists are often told that they need to be detached from, you know, the world and from you know, various expressions of, you know, kind of pleasure. And so he turned to me with this bowl of Tibetan rice pudding, and he said, I love this. And I just, I just, it was just so wonderfully, you know, like, yeah, that's not a mountaintop, you know, person floating six feet off the ground on a mountaintop talking there. That's somebody who can appreciate a good bowl of rice pudding. And I just think that, that, you know, that's really what they were sharing and showing and teaching was, you know, that we don't have to, you know, th- th- there was this wonderful phrase, the Arch said, you know, we are masterpieces in the making. Mm-hmm. And that we don't have to think that, you know, uh, you know we often think, you know, through phrases like enlightenment or being Christ-like or other things, that we have to get to this destination. That, and that somehow, you know, th- these are two men who've gotten to some spiritual destination and therefore can't speak to our reality and the kind of... The struggles that we all have. And I think what they really showed is that it's a, you know, it's a gradual journey. And, you know, they may be farther along the path than many of us in a variety of ways, but we're all on that same path. It's all the same human path. And we can learn from their wonderful example and have our own.
0: It's Zeno's paradox of spiritualism. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's uh, you never quite get there, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> now, uh, there are some really fascinating concepts. And so I'll uh, talk about Ubuntu, which is not just a flavor of Linux. It
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, so Ubuntu is this African word and concept, which means I am who I am through you. And so it's a recognition of what we were talking about earlier, of our deep connectedness and our fundamental integration with one another and inability to be separated from one another. And so we sometimes think in our kind of Western individualism that I am who I am. Because of, you know, either what I think or, you know, what I've experienced or my personal history. And uh, Ubuntu is really there to remind us of a kind of more traditional human understanding of our embeddedness in the social web of life.
0: Another one I found really interesting was Mudita. Mudita.
1: Yes. Uh, So Mudita is a Buddhist concept, um, which is really – it translates as something like joy in the well-being of others. So it's It's – A similar idea, really. Right. Yeah. It's a kind of sympathetic joy, which – right, exactly. Once we recognize our inner – Inextric- inextricable linkedness. Then you know, your joy is my joy, or your good fortune is my good fortune. We obviously feel that a lot, you know, with our children or our family. And mudita is one of the ways that Buddhists deal with, you know, the very human issues of status and envy and comparisons. And so it's a kind of spiritual practice that Buddhism has developed for being able to really find joy and pleasure in the well-being of others. A con-
0: the opposite of schadenfreude. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, I was really happy to, to find out uh, that uh, the Dalai Lama um, shared a, a, an intuition with Mark Twain. <laughs> Uh, which
1: one are you thinking of? Um, I
0: prefer to go to hell.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, that was a really powerful moment, actually, mm-hmm. in the dialogues where we they were joking the whole week about who is going to heaven and who is going to hell because you know the Dalai Lama was saying because he's a heathen he's not going to heaven, but maybe he can hold on to the skirts of Archbishop Tutu and <laughs> you know Arch, Arch can kind of argue for him getting into heaven, and at the very end of our dialogues. They were, they were also talking about their own deaths and how they were face, they faced their own death because we were really talking about the obstacles to joy as well and obviously fear of death and illness are, are some of the most profound. And the Dalai Lama turned to Arch and he said, I've decided I'd rather go to hell. There are more people there I can help. And it was just, I mean, our jaws just dropped. I mean, the, it was amazing. I mean, we were all just, you know, it was such a beautiful ex- this, mm-hmm. ex- you know, uh, expression of what you were talking about before, of compassion and that sense of, you know, incredibly, you know, going beyond one's own self-regard and thinking about all those that you can help, even if that means going to hell.
0: I want to do a quick run through the eight pillars of joy. Let's start with perspective. There are many different angles. This gets to uh, getting outside your own head. Yeah, this uh, it was really fascinating to hear them talk about how fundamental
1: this is to happiness and well-being, um, that we really need to step back and take a wider perspective on life. And it's so easy to get kind of caught up with, often fear and anger and sadness are kind of stuck on a very narrow understanding of, of, of life and our experience and our predicament and our moment. And when we step back and see it in the long sweep of our life and this perspective of how our adversity can help us to grow, it allows us to be less rigid and less kind of stuck in those emotions and to see the opportunity and the possibilities that, that exist.
0: Two, Humility. I tried to look humble and modest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is... So, um, you know, perspective then, once we have a wider perspective, leads us to the recognition that we are just one of the 7 billion people on this planet. It allows us to take the perspective of others. It allows us to kind of broaden and, and to have a kind of humility and, and, a, and a rightful understanding of ourself, which doesn't mean, you know, that we become timid. It actually means that we understand Are you know that it's not about whether we're good or bad and preoccupied with our own self, it's about recognizing that we are, you know, no better and no worse
0: than anyone else. Humor, yeah, (laughs) uh, this seems pretty. I I can get this one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was actually quite wonderful and actually quite surprising that the eight pillars of joy. Um, you know, that these two vaunted spiritual leaders would say it was the one of them was humor, and that it really is absolutely vital to be able to laugh at ourselves and that's what humility allows us to do is Absolutely. to laugh at ourselves and to laugh at life um the way the art that arch described it is like uh, you know and this you know they were teasing each other the whole week and you know you I know like, like that playback oh, that uh, play. oh oh my god it was just so funny to see them you know joke with each other and tease each other in this way that was so loving and connected but one of the things that, that you know what arch described it was he said you know stand next to me and we'll laugh at me and then we'll laugh at you, <laughs> you
0: uh, By the way, he described it. Uh, Acceptance. This seems again. I I guess maybe many of these seem to be a little bit of a spins on compassion. Well, you know, compassion is obviously central, but they're they're all actually, uh, you know,
1: they're they're different facets of the diamond. Mm -hmm. And so acceptance, so out of that humor and that sense, you know, ability to laugh at oneself and laugh at life comes a willingness to accept life and on its (laughs) own terms, Mm -hmm. which is a really uh, profound spiritual practice that... Is fundamental to joy, right? Because if we're, you know, in resistance to what is, we're never going to be able to be in joy. But it's what they, resilience? It's a kind of resilience. It's a kind of. Um, but acceptance is not acquiescence. It's not accepting it in a kind of passivity and saying, well, it is what it is. I mean, here are two men who have spent their lives on in social activism and, and changing the world you know, and making it different than it is. But it is accepting that any meaningful change has to
0: start from reality, and that's the reality we need to accept. Forgiveness, they say, is freeing ourselves from the past, that is, the first person, forgiveness begins at home.
1: Yeah, it's true. So those first four that we talked about, a perspective, humility, humor, and acceptance are what they call the four pillars of the heart, Of the, I'm sorry, the four pillars of the mind. Now, as we're, with forgiveness, we're stepping into the four pillars of the heart. And so um, from acceptance, when you accept the reality of what is, you can also begin to accept the reality of what was and to give up the desire for a different past. And forgiveness is really, that's what forgiveness is. It's a recognition of uh, understanding our shared humanity that we hurt and, hurt and are hurt by others and a willingness to let that uh, those, that to forgive people uh, and let that go. Now, this was a we had fascinating conversation about forgiveness, and you know, forgiveness again is not necessarily, a, you know, accepting that what was done was was good. You know, it's not you know, it's not necessarily not resisting the injustice. It's just preventing yourself from stepping into the hatred and anger that can often come from unforgiveness and from allowing us not to be chained to the past in a way that the unforgiveness often does. Gratitude,
0: this is important to practice, I think, on a daily basis. Every day we need to look around and be thankful for the many wonderful things that surround us.
1: Yeah, it's true. So when we are able to let go of the past, we are able to kind of step into the present in a way, you know, if we can not wish for a different past, we can, or try to, you know, hold on to the the you know the false hope that we could have you know that there was a different past for us then we can step into a kind of gratitude for what we have been given and what we do have and gratitude is really this extraordinarily wonderful way of lifting up life it's about it's a kind of spiritual response to the pleasures of life it's that you know when the Dalai Lama turns to us and says you know, how much he loves this bowl of rice pudding. You know, it's really, it's an expression of gratitude for the opportunity to enjoy that aspect of life. And I think it's so easy sometimes for us to kind of take life for granted and and not to recognize all that we have been given and all that we have. Um, so yes, gratitude is absolutely essential. And, and yes, as you said, they actually talked about it as a daily practice. Uh,
0: compassion, We. The, I guess the the one of the jewels in the crown?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, from our own gratitude for the life that we have been given, comes a desire for others to have that abundance and that well-being as well. And a kind of recognition of, you know, empathy for those who are suffering. And I think having compassion, I think they would say is just such a fundamental marker of well-being and and being able to have a, a, the kind of lasting joy that's not about a kind of ephemeral f- uh, fleeting feeling but
0: really as a character trait. I think that each of these uh, aspects of joy is to a certain degree, I would say, addictive, that once you understand them and, and make them part of your life, they seem natural and you don't want to get rid of them. And each, <laughs> each leads to the next. And I think... Certainly, compassion leads to generosity. Yeah, generosity
1: was it was very interesting because that's where they kind of the the whole the whole train kind of uh, end. You know, culminated and you know generosity is very powerful because it's the taking of compassion and in, into action, mm-hmm. and it's not. Uh, just about kind of giving money, as we often think about charity, which is such a central understanding in most traditions, but it's also a, a willingness to give our time. It's also about a kind of generosity of the spirit. So I think one of the ways to talk, you know, see both of these men is they have this extraordinary generosity of the spirit. And that generosity of the spirit, which is kind of assuming the best in others, being fully present and, you know, kind of with others it's really the kind of
0: culmination of the the eight pillars of joy it strikes me that the means by which they are generous and i in a sense what you might say is their uh, superpower is their ability to give their attention yeah. to uh, essentially the entire world i think that anybody who reads this book and obviously millions and Billions of people who mm. know about these men, have heard about these men, um, feel that when they're speaking, mm. they're, these men, even though they might be making a speech or uh, writing this book, there's a sense of intimacy. And I think that's the real uh, – this mm. the another core of this book is that mm. by putting us in this room with these men and putting yourself in this room with these men and also your voice in terms of – bringing in the science that they both believe in and, and think is helpful. Um, it's the sense of intimacy so that they are speaking not just to one another, but to each and every single human being on the planet.
1: It's so beautifully said. I think that's, that's so much our goal uh, was for them to be able to speak directly into the heart of each reader I really think you're right that one of their great skills, and because they're not speaking from the mountaintop, but because they're speaking kind of in this intimate, close way directly to you as we are speaking here, it allows, I think, each of us to feel their humanity and to feel touched by that humanity and inspired by it. I wonder if you talk a little bit about the joy practices at the end of the book. Sure. So um, we asked them to share with us their joy practices, the kinds of uh, meditations and prayerful practices, uh, or contemplative practices that they do to keep themselves in touch with these eight uh, pillars of joy and also to just keep themselves in a life that's, you know, buffeted by all the things that we all are buffeted by, whether that's traffic or, or international conflict. And so we included those practices. There were things, you know, so as beautiful and simple as the Dalai Lama was telling us how every morning... He sets his intention for the day, and by at the end of the day, he reflects on that intention to see whether he has reached that intention or fulfilled that intention, and that's a very common Buddhist monastic practice. So we included those. There were practices, beautiful compassion practices, so different kinds of practices that they use on a regular basis, either specifically to address certain Issues, as you said, mudita, for example, as a, as a kind of antidote to envy or, you know, just practices just to keep their hearts open and, and their minds clear.
0: The new book by Doug Abrams is The Book of Joy, Lasting Happiness in a Changing World. It was co-written with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Thank you for joining me, Doug.
1: It's been great to be here with you, Rick. Thank you so much. <music>